Chapter 4 String Theories Laboratory 311, home of the waller laboo Particle Accelerator. It was the perfect day for a high school field trip. The sun was shining, birds were singing, and the staff was, well, dead. All of them dead. Welcome to Laboratory 311, the tour guide had said. But when she went back to check on the screams coming from the Particle Accelerator viewing chamber, she never came back. To the best of our teacher's understanding, some sort of accident caused the emergency protocols to kick in. That meant a complete lockdown and containment of any breach. Now I'm trapped in the complex with the other students and our teacher, Mr. Panacharian, waiting for a rescue team. Kids, please stay together, Mr. Pan said gruffly. Pan was a big man. He wasn't fat, but he wasn't muscle-bound either. He was powerful-looking with huge hands and an overly expressive unibrow that looked like two caterpillars practicing the Kama Sutra on his forehead. Picture a Greco-Roman wrestler, but shorter. Probably just a higher concentration of Neanderthal DNA. I mean, give the man a cigar and mutton chops, and he would have been the perfect guy to play a comic book accurate Wolverine. Mr. Pan, I have to go to the bathroom, Becky Anderson whined. Really bad. Pan's shoulders drooped and he sighed like a man whose job it was to tell the world that humanity was on the brink of extinction. Becky, we're supposed to remain in this room until someone comes to let us out. I don't think anyone will hold an accident against you. To be honest, I have to go too. Brad Wilson, team quarterback, snickered. Don't be too sure of that. I'm sure there'll be plenty of judging. Pan swiveled his head on the tree stump serving as his neck and glared at Brad. Don't be a dick, Brad he said, clearly unafraid of potential repercussions. You've been doing the pee-pee dance for the last twenty minutes. The rest of the class, including Becky, laughed as Brad's face flushed a deep, warm crimson. It took a moment to register amidst the laughter, but a hush rolled through the room as we all recognized the sound of what could best be described as a guttural, primal roar. The roar echoed through the room like a train passing through an underground terminal and Becky began to cry. I put my arm around her, hoping to provide a little comfort, but I wasn't feeling all that comfortable myself. A series of shrieks and screams rang out in the halls, followed by a high-pitched squeal that sounded like the mating call of a cyborg dolphin. Becky, voice shaking like a Yahtzee cup, whispered, Brad just peed himself. We stood in the closest thing to silence we could muster. I mean, there were whimpers, whispers, and outright crying, and of course, Mr. Pan was busy hushing all of the above, but it wasn't as bad as the pandemonium going on in the hall and particle accelerator chamber. Suddenly, the door from the adjoining viewing room flew open, and a tall Japanese man wearing a lab coat and yellow safety glasses stumbled through. He quickly closed the door behind him and cursed when he remembered there wasn't a lock on our side. He turned to look at us, seeming surprised for a moment, and then wheezed, The field trip, thank God. Are you all accounted for? He looked to Mr. Pan for an answer, his eyes desperate. Everyone's here except Jody, our tour guide, Mr. Pan replied. He looked just as shaken as the man standing in front of us. His name tag identified him as Fuun Shishido, senior controls engineer. Can you tell us what's happening here? Fuun shook his head. Classified, he muttered. Mr. Pan wasn't a fan of the engineer's answer. In one solid move, he hefted him against the unlocked door by the front of his lab coat. 
I have more than a dozen kids here whose parents won't give a good goddamn about your classified crap. What in the hell is going on out there? Fu'un looked at us through cockeyed safety glasses, as if finally seeing us for what we were, a bunch of clueless kids who just wanted to go home. He sighed and relented. Let go of my jacket, please. It was a request, not a demand, and Mr. Pan obliged. Thank you, Fu'un said, offering a slight bow. I'm sorry. You see, everything is classified, even the number of sugars I take in my coffee. Chalk it up to habit. The man looked around the room. Seeing nothing but terror, he continued. He must have thought Mr. Pan was a priest because he spilled the beans on everything except how many sugars he'd taken in his coffee that morning. A strange black stone, unlike anything we'd ever seen. A power source beyond comprehension. We used it to power the accelerator. It worked well the first time. It opened the multiverse like a beautiful patchwork. We could see everything, everywhere. But the second time, the investors got greedy. They wanted to do more than just see. They wanted to explore. But it was an accident. An accident ripped a hole in the complex fabric of space-time and it appears the multiverse is now collapsing into a single nexus. That nexus is our lab. It's contained for the moment, but the strain of the entire multiverse pressing against the tear is just too much for even space-time to hold. The rip is expanding. Soon it will exceed the confines of this facility, and there will be no place to hide. Unless someone closes it, I said matter-of-factly. I was trying to impress Becky who'd clamped onto my arm like a human vice. A very pretty, incredibly nice-smelling human vice. But it was still a valid statement, right? Everyone in the room looked at me like I'd just professed my virginity or something. Seriously? Are you going to tell me you can't close it? I asked. He's got a point, Brad said, no longer trying to hide the drying stain on the front of his Levi's. I hadn't really expected validation from anyone, especially Brad. Foon sighed and pursed his lips. I'm only a controls engineer. I'm not allowed to operate the systems necessary to- Doesn't matter if you should do it. The new voice was Jamal Stone, a generally quiet, self-described science nerd who probably understood what was happening better than anyone on the field trip, including Mr. Pan. The question is, can you? Foon looked really nervous. He was obviously a rules guy, but we were teenagers. We broke rules for breakfast. Jamal continued, Look, I've been taking particle physics classes through MIT's online program since junior high. If you need an assistant, I've got your back. But you've got to be straight with us, all right, bro? Foon nodded. Yes, it is worth a try. I think dodging any sort of liability went out the window when the rip appeared. And as far as I can tell, I'm the only employee left alive. I'll try. And I'll take whatever help I can get. Becky was looking at Jamal with a newfound level of admiration. We all were. I'd had a crush on Becky since the fourth grade, but unless her last name was Higgs Boson, Jamal wouldn't have even known she was alive. I stepped forward once more. Are there any weapons around here? Like a security station or anything? Someone has to keep everyone else safe while you guys figure this thing out. Foon nodded. Yes, but I wouldn't bother with the security station. They've only got tasers and batons. There's another chamber, not far from here, with tactical exploration gear, just in case we were successful. Mr. Pan shook his head ruefully. 
Looks like you were successful. I nodded. Jamal, you help Mr. Susudio. Whoever wants to come with me, I'm going for the tactical gear. Becky squeezed my arm, Jamal all but forgotten. I'm coming with you. Brad stepped forward bravely. I'm with you too, nerd. His facade of bravado was as thin as our survival odds. Not so fast, kids. Mr. Pan put up his hands. I'm responsible for all of you, so... No disrespect, Mr. Pan, I said. But things are only getting worse out there, and time is not on our side. You can't stop us all. If you want to protect us, come with us and gear up. Several kids agreed out loud. While the screaming outside had ceased, the alarms continued to blare at a, well, alarming level. Mr. Pan looked flustered, but he couldn't argue. Not about that. Not considering what we all knew. He finally nodded and looked at Shishido. Okay. Some of us will get the tactical gear. The rest will assist you and Jamal. He glanced around the room at my classmates. Or stay out of the way. A few of the students who were neither scientifically inclined nor particularly excited about carrying a firearm nodded sheepishly. Mr. Pan looked satisfied. So, Mr. Shishido, tell me, where is this munitions depot? A few minutes later... Eight of us, including Mr. Pan, Brad, Becky, and I, escaped the locked room using Mr. Shishido's keycard. He had limited access inside the facility, meaning the keycard wasn't going to open any exits leading to the outside world. But he assured us he had access to the munitions room. It turns out our humble Mr. Shishido was more important than he made himself out to be. Our unwitting savior had overseen the development of most of the systems that controlled everyday life at Waller Laboo, including security. His card allowed him to go anywhere his expertise might be needed. Apparently, he was needed just about everywhere. Shishedo, Jamal, and the other five kids remained in the waiting area, as there were unimaginable horrors lurking on the other side of the unlocked door leading to the lab. Horrors yours truly needed to take down before the science nerds could repair the rip. We wedged a chair under the doorknob, effectively preventing any accidental openings. Unfortunately, if something in the lab had even a bit of upper body strength and an inkling of determination, the chair wouldn't stop it for long. As it turns out, Mr. Pan was a former Marine and pretty badass. We won't talk about the time he ran out of a classroom full of kids during an earthquake. Everyone's allowed a phobia. Interdimensional cosmic horror, it seemed, wasn't one of his. As part of the 1st Marine Raider Battalion, clearing rooms was second nature to our warrior-turned-science teacher. Had we been learning from freaking MacGyver all along? Stay close, kids, Pan whispered. With the alarm still blaring, I doubt anyone but those of us closest to him could hear. He used hand signals to guide us. Even if most of us didn't know what the signals actually meant, his body language told us everything we needed to know. Two fingers up, three fingers sideways, who the hell knew? But when his hand shot up like a high five as he was about to turn down another hall, we all recognized stop. Pan looked back to see if the path behind us was clear. He raised two fingers and circled them in the air. Maybe he wanted us to turn around? Before any of us could register the signal, a mass of wet, albino-white tentacles that resembled extra-long ears of overcooked slimy white corn slithered around the corner and coiled around Mr. Pan's ankle and calf. Our teacher grunted. Impressive, considering the rest of us would have shrieked like babies if the things touched us. He tried to kick at the tentacles before realizing that was the worst possible response. Once he lifted his foot, 
Whatever was attached to the tentacles yanked him off balance and dragged him, screaming and flailing his arms like a cartoon character, down the hall and out of sight. Then we all shrieked like babies. The shrieking, it turned out, was also a bad idea. A high-pitched chittering sound followed by a rapid succession of wet, guttural yelps echoed from somewhere in the corridor behind us. Stan Batista, a big, quiet Samoan dude with hair like John Travolta in that really old movie Grease, ran from the back of the group towards the corridor Mr. Pan just disappeared down. And the stampede was on. Becky started running before I did. I only started moving because she was pulling on my arm, and one of us was bound to fall if I didn't go with her. I might have started pumping my legs like a madman when an odd clicking, like the sound of hundreds of tiny feet running, began swarming up the hall in our direction. The problem was, everyone was running down the wrong hall. Mr. Pan had the map, but I'd memorized it. The hall our teacher disappeared down, where the class was now running, was the wrong one. We were supposed to go straight, not left. I pulled on Becky and hollered, This is the wrong way! She slowed and looked at me, and finally stopped. Brad and Stan, who'd inadvertently started the exodus, stopped as well. Everyone else kept running, unable to hear my shout over the alarms and screaming. I tugged at Becky's arm, nodding back to the hall we'd come from. Without another word or gesture, the four of us ran back and turned left. As we passed through the junction of intersecting halls, I spotted Mr. Shishido's keycard on the ground. Poor Mr. Pan dropped it when the tentacles pulled him off his feet. I scooped up the card and kept running. Then I made the mistake of looking back. About two or three dozen pregnant cat-sized creatures stopped at the junction we'd just run back through. I tugged at Becky and shushed, pointing back down the hall. I wasn't sure she could even see the gesture in the dim emergency lighting. We stopped, transfixed by the mind-numbing sight. Brad and Stan stopped and looked back as well. There was a collective skipped heartbeat as we watched. Suddenly, Brad wasn't the only one with pee in his pants. Hey, it might be Stan I'm talking about. Or Becky. No judging, all right? Oh, yeah, the creatures. The creatures looked like they were very, very distant relatives to spiders. Their bodies were roughly the size of volleyballs, and their color was a sickly, translucent, milky hue, like an amphibian's eggs. We could see through to their innards. While their skin was clear, there was an awful mixture of red and pink tones swirling around in what looked like their digestive tract. Most likely, human flesh. Becky dug her nails into my forearm. I was fairly sure I was bleeding by now. The bodies were bad enough, but their legs made me wish I was wearing brown pants. It's a pirate joke my dad likes to tell. Look it up. Their legs were long and spindly, but sturdy-looking. They were the same milky-white hue and covered with spiky white hairs that seemed to move independently, like a cat's whiskers. The worst thing about the legs wasn't the length, the color, or the fact they needed a waxing in the worst way. It wasn't even that they had so many we couldn't count them. It was the tiny tongues. From each joint, on each leg, and there were a lot of both, what looked like a tiny tongue protruded, licking eagerly at the air, tasting it, maybe smelling it. And it might have been the diffused lighting, but I couldn't seem to see a single eye on any of the things. They appeared to be blind. The four of us had stopped in the hall, right out in plain sight. We'd be sitting ducks if the things decided to come our way. 
As I said, though, the things had to have been blind, because they stopped at the T-juncture, seemingly confused by the two directions available to them. Their tiny tongues lapped at the air like a cat at a puddle of milk, and their leg whiskers moved as if pushed by an unseen wind. Then the tapping started again. It was nothing in comparison to the awfulness of the alarms, but it was so consistent and rhythmic that the emergency systems couldn't overshadow it. The sound was like hundreds of tiny tap dancers sending out messages in Morse code, but creepier, like if the tap dancers were mimes. Then someone farted. I refused to believe it was Becky, even though she excused herself. It must have been Stan or Brad. She was just being polite. But when one of the two Cretans cut the cheese, the collective tap-dancing monstrosity's whiskers all swayed in our direction, and a thousand tiny tongues started licking at the air in our section of the hall. Then they took a step towards us, and when I say they, I mean all of them. One step became two, two became four, and before we knew it, they were practically skipping in our direction singing zippity-doo-dah. I don't know about them, but I wanted to go away from the fart, not towards it. Several more steps and the multi-legged nightmares were practically on top of us. The way we huddled together, if they brushed past one of us, they'd find us all. I lifted my foot to step on the closest one, though I was certain all that would do was make it mad. Seeing as we were already doomed, then we heard the roar, the screams, and the stampede of footsteps coming from Mr. Pan Memorial Hallway. Our classmates had found something else. Or something else had found them. The spiderlings decided the screaming and running was far more interesting than a fart. Without so much as a see y'all later, they were off to dinner. A moment later, the screaming increased. A few seconds after that, everything became quiet. Move! I whisper shouted. We continued our panicked race towards the safety of the munitions room. A shriek from behind us froze us in our tracks. It was human. We turned to see Aaliyah Lopez stumbling towards us, her eyes wide with terror. She screamed again when she saw us and reached out for help. We all bolted towards her, but stopped short when we saw the opaque, whisker-covered leg stalks creeping over her shoulders and around her upper torso. The whiskers seemed to do nothing to the fabric of her hoodie. But as soon as they touched the exposed flesh of her neck and face, they burrowed in like sentient porcupine quills. They pulled the legs and those awful-licking tongues up against her neck and face, but that was just the terrifying beginning. As the legs made contact, Aaliyah's flesh dissolved like a hot knife passing through a hard stick of butter, or maybe a lightsaber through metal. There was definitely some bubbling. Man, I don't mean to sound callous. Seriously, in that awful moment... I think the four of us screamed at least as much as Aaliyah. She was our friend. We grew up together. I still remember the first day of kindergarten. Aaliyah sat next to me. We got in trouble for talking. The photographer had to take a second picture because of us. We could only assume Mr. Pan, Tegan Short, and Karsten Jablanka were dead. In Aaliyah's case, though, we were sure of it. We had to watch her die. Her voice suddenly turned into a gurgling spurt, and it was over. Bile filled my mouth at a ratio equivalent to the tears filling my eyes. Becky was shaking uncontrollably. Oh my god! Oh my god! I hugged her tightly. We're gonna be all right. Right, guys? I looked to Stan and Brad for reassurance. They were holding each other the way Becky was holding me. Brad let go of Stan. Not a word of this, nerd. Do you hear me? Stan looked like he still needed a hug. He, yeah, I stammered. 
It wasn't time for jokes. Not a word, man, I promise. We all backed away from Aaliyah's corpse and the thing that was greedily consuming her. More pink and red swirls appeared in its digestive tract, these shades fresh and darker than the previous ones. For a moment, the thing stopped feeding. Its whiskers pointed towards us like tiny magnets, feeling the air currents, perhaps. The horrible tongues, now dripping with bits of our friend's flesh and bone, lapped tentatively at the air that existed between us. I hoped nobody else had to fart. Then, as if satisfied, it continued dining on Aaliyah. Of course, that wasn't the end of it. How could it have been? As it continued dissolving and absorbing, it began to tap a foot on the concrete floor beneath Aaliyah's body. The pattern was rhythmic, almost hypnotic. Suddenly, more tapping echoed from the distant, darkened hallway beyond it. It was as if the others were answering? Then it dawned on me, the reason it sounded like Morse code. The tapping wasn't just echolocation. It was a form of communication. Run! I barked. Now! The four of us ran like our lives depended on it. Believe me, they did. The tapping had started as a response. But as soon as we began running, it increased in volume. The spiderlings were in pursuit once again. We tore down the hall at breakneck speed. Becky let go of my arm and pulled ahead of all of us. Brad, everybody's favorite quarterback, was close behind Becky, then me, and finally poor Stan, who was not exactly a track and field star. We rounded another corner, and I called out to Becky and Brad, who had both run past the door to the munitions room. The alarm was still blaring, and Becky didn't hear me. Brad grabbed the back of her sweater, almost pulling it off. Becky screamed and batted at Brad's hand. It's okay, Brad shouted. It's just me. Becky looked around, panicked beyond any real rationality or reason. But when she saw me open the door and let Stan run through, she swatted Brad's hand away and ran back to the safety of the munitions room. Becky practically dove through the doorway. Brad, not to be outdone by a girl, slid through the opening like a baseball player stealing first. Finally, I ducked inside and slammed the door behind me. As I locked the door, I felt something touch my shoe. I looked down and leapt back, revolted by the sight and the smell. It was about eight inches of a spiderling's leg. I'd cut it off cleanly when I slammed the door. A clear substance the consistency of melted Vaseline oozed from the open end of the severed leg. Brad inched forward, reaching out to touch it. I grabbed his wrist. Dude, look, I said, my breath hitching after our mad dash for freedom. As Brad extended his fingers, the whiskers stiffened like they were straining to reach him. The worst possible high-five ever. It's still trying to eat, Stan commented behind Brad. Becky tried to turn on some lights, but the emergency lighting was apparently all we were going to get. Thankfully, there were no alarm speakers wired into the munitions room, though we could hear them through the door just as clearly as we could hear the incessant, nerve-grinding tapping. Brad pulled his hand away, his face betraying the all-too-fresh memory of Aaliyah's horrible death. I suddenly felt awful for her parents. It's still alive? Brad wondered out loud. Probably more like a worm's physiology. Becky commented, still sounding shaken, but calmer than before. She was on a biology track. She'd probably be a doctor one day if we survive long enough to turn in college applications. Their digestive system seems to run throughout its entire body, so it's more like a worm or a plant than anything else. Brad shuddered. Gross. Becky shrugged. You've heard of the book Everyone Poops, right? Well, everyone eats too. Enough about the damn spider leg, I said. 
We had more pressing matters than theoretical alien biology at stake. It's not really a spider, Becky started. Fine, I snapped, suddenly wishing I hadn't used that tone with her. Sorry. I'm just worried about the others and the fate of the world, you know? We need to sort out these weapons and get back to them so they can close the rip. Becky looked surprised. So did Brad and Stan. I was generally pretty chill. It's okay, Becky said finally. We're all on edge. She walked over to the wall of weapons and gestured at them. Any idea what any of this is? Stan raised a hand, forgetting he wasn't in class. Yeah, my uncle's a survival freak. I spent a few summers with him and my cousins in Montana. I never actually thought those summers might save my life one day. Or save the world, Brad muttered. Well then, Stan, my friend, I said, intentionally lightening up my tone. The floor's yours. What have we got here? Stan wasn't kidding about his time in Montana. Aside from a few items that were more science-related than search and destroy, Stan could identify everything, right down to the ammo. The room was like a Toys R Us for the Unabomber. Lining the walls were guns, ammo, grenades, flamethrowers, RPGs, landmines, various types of goggles and scopes, even bladed weapons like machetes, survival shovels, and axes. Then there was the survival gear itself. Fatigues and viro suits, oxygen tanks, MREs and water packs, medical kits. The list went on and on. Get into an enviro suit and load up a duffel bag with everything you can carry while still using a gun, I said, feeling a lot like Winston Churchill, but less inspiring. Becky stood looking at the enviro suits. She was clearly uncomfortable with the idea of putting one on. She saw me looking at her and blushed. I'm sorry, she said quietly. I'm super claustrophobic. I can't even play hide-and-seek without a panic attack. I smiled and lied. Hmm, me too. But we don't want those spy, uh, wormy, planty things that look like effed-up spiders to touch our skin, right? She nodded. Yeah, you're right. Want us to turn around? I asked, nodding at Brad and Stan, who were already picking out enviro suits. Becky wrinkled her nose. Why? Because you might see my bra? It was my turn to blush. We don't have time for Vanity Packard, she said, pulling off her sweater and top. And I saw her bra.